0: This program is a part of the Full Press Radio Network. Find this and all of Full Press Coverage's shows on fullpressradio.com or free on the Full Press Coverage app, available now on the Apple and Google Play stores.
1: This is Fran Tarkenden on the iTest for Two. Thanksgiving is a week away, so I guess there's no reason we can't get a jump on expressing what we're thankful for. And Ian, I'm thankful for today's special guest. That would be Mr. Ira Kaufman, back from St. Thomas for a second straight week with us. Yes, Ira, welcome back. R- rumor has it you liked it so much here a week ago. You're thinking of staying. Is that right?
2: Oh, I can't wait to get back, Clark. I can't wait to get back. Nothing's cheap there. But... um <laughs> You know what? Sometimes you got to pay for a little paradise. And it was absolutely paradise. Even though, Clark, even though, and I'll tell more on a future podcast, um, when we landed in St. Thomas for our 40th anniversary trip, something happened at the airport and my wife didn't speak to me for six hours, six hours. (laughs)
1: Sounds like a 40-year marriage. Hey,
2: Ara, you mean this is not paradise? This is not paradise by the dashboard live for you? Hey, by the way, by the way, Clark, uh, we have an issue here in, in Tampa besides uh, the drooping Buccaneers. Uh, I'm and- going to... Uh, okay, go ahead. I was going to get to the Bucks, but what's your issue? Well, you may not be aware of this, but um, I'm going to be asked about this today on, uh, on Mad Dog Russo, I'm sure. But Tom Brady is, is being a little snippy With the post-game comments, Clark, he got up and he tried to leave after 50 seconds Sunday night in uh, Washington.
1: I I saw it. I think that can happen when your coach calls you out and says that you were responsible for the interception, including one that bounced off of receiver's hands. But anyway, we'll get to that. First of all, I just want to say, Ian, it's nice to have Ira back with us. You know, that's something we're always grateful for. I hope he just sticks around this time. So. Uh, I mentioned a special guest. We do, as a matter of fact, have a special guest with us today, and that's the historian and friend of the show, John Turney of Pro Football Journal. Now, John will join us momentarily to talk about the Hall's new president, that'd be Jim Porter, the passing of Sam Huff, and next week's Hall of Fame reveal of the 25 semifinalists for the class of 2022. But first... Ian, Ira, you guys are in the Tampa area. Ira's in Tampa. Ian's in St. Petersburg. Let's get back to what <laughs> Ira was talking about. I live in the Northeast, so I'm kind of curious what's going on down there. What's the temperature of Bucks fans after last weekend's loss in Washington? Because somebody down there, I read somewhere, somebody down there, in fact, it was a Hall of Fame voter, was so outraged, he suggested the Bucks might have been guilty of, quote,
2: loafing unquote are you know anything about that Clark not not only did I suggest it but I got my cue from the head coach of the Buccaneers and Ian I think you'll be with me on this one Ian you, you don't hear a head coach even in the heat of the moment moments after a game talk about lack of effort um Ian that that's kind of disconcerting for Buck Nation Ian
0: Well, uh, that that might uh, require a little uh, self-accountability if uh, they're not showing up and not giving the effort. You know, that that lands on coaching, too. So, um, look, I I, I know Bruce likes to to speak his mind, and and Clark kind of alluded to this. Sometimes I I think he gets in his own way. Um, You know, of course, Brady deserved uh, blame for that second interception, but obviously that first one was, I mean, you could argue that was a catch and a fumble, you know, let alone an interception. So I, I, I think... The facade, the show, kind of goes a little overboard sometimes. And when you talk about lack of effort, I think first and foremost that that lands on coaching because that tells me that he didn't get them up for that game.
1: Ira didn't even use the word, and
2: I'm talking about Bruce Arians, didn't even use the word dumb uh, about his players, his team. He did. Um, Clark, and, and Ian's right. You know, he likes to send messages through the media. Uh, sometimes he says things that he really doesn't believe in, Clark. But the fact is, Clark, the fact is, they just made Trevor Simeon and um, and Taylor Heineke look like Brett Farf. I mean, and that's a fact. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's right. It, it, it sounds like you have some of those Bucks defenders in your, your house there. I, I, me, I can hear uh, him barking.
2: Uh, you you keep talking, uh, Clark. I got to go get the dog. <laughs>
1: Is that the underdog? Um, anyway, well, uh, someone who never loses joins us today, and that's not Ira. Uh, it is Mr. John Turney, who's a historian, a Hall of Fame historian in our mind, and he's a friend of the show. He's been on it many times, um, and he joins us today from his home in New Mexico. And, John, Ira and I didn't have time to get into it last week, but there was a fascinating discussion Uh, with new Hall of Fame President Jim Porter. He had it with the voters, the Hall of Fame Board of Selectors. There were 14 of us on the uh, call, 18 in total, 18 persons. But he had that with us, and the conversation was such was a 50-minute conversation that it suggests really a new direction for this hall and, and maybe just maybe hope for the seniors. I know you watched it. Sort of wondered what your take was from the incoming president of the Pro Football Hall of Fame.
3: Well, it was certainly uh positive in in my view. I really thought a few years ago when they went, they eliminated the second senior slot that it was a mistake. I didn't understand it in terms of fairness because everyone knew that the universe of senior players was bigger than the contributors and the coaches, uh, it would have been, if they were going to add a coaches category, it would have been better to rotate it rather than take away a senior slot. So returning to it is, is very encouraging, and I'm, hopefully they can do it uh, sooner rather than later. I, I've written a couple of pieces that they needed to have an emergency meeting. I did, I mean, they, they didn't do anything based on what I wrote, but that was my sentiment. So they're following what my hopes were. So happy to see it. Hope it happens right away, uh, starting with the class of 2023.
1: Well, he didn't rule that out. He didn't rule that out. In fact, um, someone was saying about the timing and such, and he said, listen, I want to get on this, and I'm going to bring it before the board in December, meaning the board of directors of the hall. I really want to get on this thing. And there's no reason we couldn't do it as soon as the class of 2023. So I want to make sure we get the process right. And that's the first time I've heard that in a long time. Um, And someone said something about two candidates and he said, why would you stop at two, maybe three? I mean, it depends on what you think is right. I'm going to listen to you and we'll take it to the board of directors and we'll come up with a solution. I think to be honest with you, John, two's a minimum. I think three's a possibility. Now, I don't want to throw the gates open so that, you know, all of a sudden everyone's coming in, but but I think the fact that he's open to one or two more a year and every year is a real positive sign for a group that is so deep and so rich with Hall of Fame-worthy players.
3: Well, and what would be great is if they did have a third, even if it wasn't every year, but maybe a a third every other year if that could be reserved for what i've been calling super seniors guys that have been overlooked that are pre-world war ii uh, or in that era uh, we've talked many times about al ox wistert who was a guy who who blocked for the nfl's leading rusher the all-time leading rusher when he retired steve van Buren, or another ox ox emerson you know, you go with the, the who blocked for, for Dutch Clark, arguably the best player of the 1930s. Here's a guy that was a six-time All-Pro. And then you've got uh, two Packers that were probably knocking each other off. Oddly, they were both elected to the Wisconsin legislature. One was a Republican. One was a Democrat, Bern Llewellyn and Lavi Dillwig. I always wondered if that wasn't part of the the problem with either of them being elected because they were both many-time all-pros, world champions and so forth. So there's four right there that could be there's not a huge universe of these pre-World War II guys, but it would be something to to have them in in a period of, you know, maybe five or 10 years. So that would be wonderful, wouldn't it?
1: Yeah, oh, sure. And and John, just following on that, what about a caveat that says essentially, OK, if you're going to have, let's just say three for argument's sake, one would be pre-50, 1950, one would be pre seventy. 1970, and then there's an at-large. So but you would have to have one from pre-1950, one from pre-70, and then from one from any time after.
3: Yeah, it, I think that would be fair because one of the cautionary things would be uh, the recentism. I know that's not an actual word, but it's used uh, colloquially. Uh, people get enamored with the most recent guys, and and there's – You would want some recent guys in, the ones that kind of fell through the cracks recently because of whatever reason, uh, the Joe Jacobies and the Mike Hens and people like that. But also you would want to ignore the guys from the 50s and 60s and what we're talking about, the super seniors, like the Wisterts and the Ox Emersons and the Lobby Dillwigs and so forth. So yeah, it could be a layered approach, which would be great. And there would be nothing wrong with doing that for five or seven years and then revisiting it in that particular time. These things don't have to be in my mind for time in memoriam, because you, you could adjust and adapt based on what the circumstances are. If, you're, if you exhaust the um, pre-World War Two guys, then you can look at it in five or 10 years or something like that.
2: John, do you think, John, do you think part of the, this issue, with the seniors also pertains to uh, the hall stance, which has been very firm, John, in, in terms of trying to put a cap on the overall class. Uh, they don't want more than seven. They don't want more than eight, except for that, you know, one-time Centennial class. And, John, I, I think that's part of the issue is uh, they don't want it to be too unwieldy, maybe on the, you know, enshrinement weekend. Um, and if they uh, if they could get off that spot of seven or eight uh, and be comfortable with more, uh, that, that would open up
3: some more spots. Well, yeah, the reason the senior pool is growing is because it's very hard to, to narrow the modern guys down to five. And you bring up an excellent point. A lot of people will say, oh, why don't they just put in 10 a year? Well, you got to also remember that canton and the hall of fame it's a brick and mortar type of deal i've been there when there was a class of seven and you have people staying in hotels in akron and cleveland just so you can have everybody who wants to come and and celebrate people in the hall of fame and these were family and friends these weren't just fans so there's not enough room to have 10 uh, inductees and all their families and friends, especially if most of them are living. Now, if you're going to put in, I mean, this sounds, you know, gruesome and maybe not seen, but if you have two, three of the, let's say, nine people that are passed away or from their super seniors or people that they're one guy from the fifties, they're not going to add a lot of fans. Let's be frank about it so that might not put pressure on the hotels and the dining facilities and and the gift shop and all the things that, that happened during that weekend the parades and so forth but if you added a modern and we're talking about big type names there is pressure on on the infrastructure let's call it so i understand what they're going through and, and i've also been there there and know people at the Hall of Fame, they work so hard, and what happens is they have to recruit people who live in Canton to drive people around to, to accommodate all these things, so the hall itself can't handle it. They have to have hundreds and hundreds of volunteers to get all this stuff done, and you also have to remember the Hall of Fame is a, um, it's a tourist distru- uh, uh, attraction, and the people there you know, the women and men that work there don't make a ton of money. I I happen to know a little bit about this and it's really hard for them to get all this done when you're not, you know, you're not making six figures. Let's put it that way.
2: I get John. I want to ask you about two guys in particular um, who you could argue, John, you could argue they've been vetted by the selectors um, and, and that's, Jacoby and, and Bob Kuchenberg, and Kuchenberg always sticks in my mind, um, John, because I always used to allude to him when I was making my John Lynch speeches about how many times can a guy be in here and, and, and not get in, and then Kuchenberg fell off the map. Now he's in that abyss. So, John, here's my question. Um, if you want to bring Jacoby and Kuchenberg up as, as senior candidates, Couldn't somebody else argue? Now wait a minute. Let's get somebody that's never uh, had their uh, their candidacy discussed. We've already been through Kuchenberg and Jacoby, and they came up short.
3: Yeah, that's you know, uh, you know, that's one of those things that comes to what the voters really want. Um, You know, there is a process, and and it's sometimes somebody says, okay, they've been weighed and measured and found wanting. However, sometimes there were some things that went on in those early committees that that were bothersome, and I think the newer committees in the the 2000s and 2010s have overcome that a little bit. Now, with Jacoby, I thought there was a little bit of, uh, let's call it partisanship that was going on, and there was a bit of misinformation, I thought, that was passed around, not by the voters, not by the voter, but it did get disseminated in that Jacoby got moved to right tackle because he wasn't as good at left tackle when it really was Jim Lachey when he came in uh, struggled at right tackle so Jacoby unselfishly moved to right tackle and that kind of shot him down because there was somebody who wanted Tony Baselli to get in and I thought hey there's room for everybody if you just kind of calm down and realize it doesn't have to happen this year so I understand that argument, but that's up to you guys. That, that's the, you know, heavy is the crown that the king wears, and you guys are the kings. So if somebody misses out, that's what happens. But I do think there's there's room for all these guys if everybody doesn't get in a huge hurry and say, this guy has to get in right now.
1: We're speaking with historian John Turney of Pro Football Journal on the iTest for two. And, John, we are partisan on this show. We're partisan towards historians like you. And I think you should be involved in meaning not particularly you, but I would say particularly you, um, but historians involved in the process. Uh, Jim last week, Jim Porter, the new president of the Pro Football Hall of Fame, has said he wants to get everything right. He wants to get the process right. And those were his words. And and I thought one of the ways you can get it right is to, to blow up some of the, the the things that are going on today. And, and I would suggest getting historians involved. There, there are people like you, Ken Crippen, as a friend of ours, uh, yours and mine, T.J. Troop, very knowledgeable guy, Chris Willis. I mean, numbers of people who have studied film, looked at these guys, know who they are. And I think they should be involved in the senior committee. I really do, because there are, there's are some people who really haven't seen them or don't know who they are. You guys watch film with them. You study them. You chronicle them. You do everything. You're really deep into it. Just wondering what your thoughts are about changing the process regarding historians, getting historians involved in a situation or in situations where they really haven't been in terms of the Hall.
3: Well, I think, you know, that would be a positive move. move. I... Uh, in, you know, just in my particular case, I'm particularly happy just being able to, you know, and I've talked to over the years, a lot of different voters, you know, kind of behind the scenes with, with a lot of folks. And I like providing the information because I like digging for the information. So I would love to be part of anything. And I'm sure the other gentlemen that you've talked about would love to be as well. And my thing is, would be, just to get as much information into the hands of voters as possible. And if that could help kind of weed out a little bit of the partisanship, which I think is kind of creeping in there, uh, like it used to be in the 90s, I'm seeing a little bit of creep, and I don't mean that as a, a huge criticism, but I'm seeing it a little bit in the other part of it, I think is we're starting to get out of balance between skill players and, and the linemen, uh, the, uh, I think Rick Goslin calls them the blockers and tacklers. It's kind of the opposite as it should be. Now, maybe we'll never get it completely balanced, but if we continue to put in wide receivers, I think we're up to maybe close to 40 wide receivers, and we've got maybe two inside linebackers. And, the you know, it's just out of balance. So if we look at that and if we could, is, you know, as a researcher's community say, hey guys, kind of kind of look at what you're doing and do we really want the 40th best wide receiver in before we get the 15th best defensive tackle in? Stuff like that. Yeah,
1: right. Um, and just to follow on our comments about Jim Porter, um, this is an interesting thing. Our, I'm not sure you're aware of it. One follower of mine on Twitter uh, told me that he emailed him after he heard about our phone call, he emailed Jim Porter. Jim Porter wrote him right back. I saw the email. He wrote him right back. I don't recall that happening for a long time. Where somebody, just a fan, writes the head of the Pro Football Hall of Fame and says, really glad to see what you're doing. Hope you get it right. He wrote him right back. I think that's also a sign of a change of direction.
3: Well, did he um, know his name? Did he pronounce it um, properly?
1: I don't know that he knew his name, but he did after that letter, but he certainly hadn't known about him before. But, but Ira, don't you think that's a a step in the right direction? I mean, here's somebody who's playing, listen, I'm willing to listen
2: to anybody, anything. It it seems genuine Clark. It seems genuine. Uh, You know, the cynics in us and we tend to be cynical, John, you know, that um, would say, well, that's a lot of uh, talk from Jim Porter. He just got the job. He wants to sound good, but then he follows up. it seems like there's more open-mindedness going on from, uh, from the Canton Shrine right now, John.
3: Yeah, I agree. Well, I don't know this Jim Porter fellow. He sounds like he's a, a really intelligent guy. He came from the writing, publishing community, and the voters are from that community. So it seems like you guys will be able to speak the same language. And I think that's a positive step. And the other part of it is it seems like he's willing to do the due diligence. Now, if you have those two things, then the process cannot be criticized, because if you do everything you can to be fair and forthright, then people who criticize the hall have no ground to stand on, in my opinion. I think what's happened before is there might have been forces behind some of the changes that were not... Uh, In the Hall's best interest, they might have been in the interest of, of, you know, maybe some of the more powerful people in the NFL to get some of the upper echelon people who, who were on the boards and things in the Hall of Fame. Now, if the due diligence is done, the criticisms, you know, you'll still get the criticisms, but they won't be founded. They won't be just. So that's what I think Mr. Porter brings.
2: John, I want to ask you about um, a couple of guys. Uh, we, we've talked to you before about the, the Bengal Nation, you know, Anderson and, and, and Ken Riley. But John, I'm going to throw a couple of new names at you. Just give me some uh, some quick reactions um, in terms of the senior pool. Jim Marshall, his name comes up a lot. There's two. There's two guys from the Purple People Eaters already in Canton. That doesn't mean there's not room for a third. Off that defensive line, Gino Cappelletti sticks in my mind, John, uh, as a star of the AFL. And finally, John, a guy that Ron Wolf, who we all respect, called a perfect football player. And now the Terrell Davis door is open. And and that's Sterling Sharp. John, couldn't I make an argument that by 93 or 94, Sterling Sharp was the best receiver in football, including Jerry Rice?
3: Well, my opinion is you couldn't quite go that far, but my opinion also is that Ron Wolfe is is correct in calling him a Hall of Famer. Uh, That's one of those things that researchers for years have been calling the Gale Sayers exception. If a guy is all pro enough and puts up good enough numbers and his career is cut short through no fault of his own, then, yeah, the, the longevity box if it's not checked is is kind of overlooked that's where Dwight Stevenson got in that's what's probably going to happen with Tony Baselli, and has happened with Terrell Davis so I wouldn't have any issue at all with Sterling Sharp because he he passes he checks the boxes he passes the honors box he get he was all pro he passes the statistical box because if you he doesn't have the great career numbers, but average per game or average per year, he would be at the very top. He passes the eye test for sure, so he checks all those boxes. Uh, the other guys you mentioned, um, Gino Capelletti is a tough one because he was a combination player, uh, so there is a lot to be said for that. But I've checked his kicking numbers, and basically he was a fifty-one point nine percent field goal kicker, which was average for the time. He was an average wide receiver. So does being an average receiver and an average kicker make you a Hall of Famer, or do you combine those two things? In my view, he's a honestly a Hall of Fame, very, very good guy. Uh, Jim Marshall is tougher because he was a wild man. He was a tough player. He was somebody who was way undersized but was very effective. Uh, the problem is he doesn't check all the boxes, in my opinion. He was never a first-team All-Pro. Now, I don't think you have to be a five- or six-time All-Pro. Sometimes a couple times is enough, but is zero times enough. And he only went to a couple Pro Bowls, and he ended up with uh, his first 11 years, he has, I think, like 110 sacks, averaging 11 a year. That's pretty good. But then his last seven years, he only had 29. He's averaging about four a year. So those 20 years sound great, but was he really that effective his last seven or eight years? That's something you guys have to sort out. Again, you're like a jury. But in my opinion, he kind of falls short of being an all-time great in terms of productivity. He's an all-time great in terms of being an icon, a wild man, a leader and so forth, but uh, I think there are better defensive ends like a Jim cavage, who are productive from beginning to end.
2: Yeah, his claim to fame, John, is probably his durability, and that, that's probably not the first thing you should say about a guy.
3: Yeah, I think, I, think there's, I think there's no shame in being a Hall of Fame or a Hall of Very Good type player. He, he gets the notoriety for being a 20-year player but it would be a lot like um, a, a baseball player who was an all star for his first 11, 12 years, who was hitting 300, hitting 20 homers a year. And then his last eight years, he's hitting 240 with 15 or 16 homers. And, you, and you're expected to be a power hitter. Uh, that's the analogy I would make.
1: Hey John, you're starting to get short on time here. So what I'm going to do is jump from the past to the present. And next Wednesday, which is November 24th, there's going to be an announcement of 25 semifinalists for the modern era class of 2022. Just wondering, do you have a long shot or or two that you'd like to get in there? Let's see, get in there.
3: Yeah, I I would love to see Bryant Young be on the the final 25, maybe a Patrick Willis uh, and Albert Lewis. Those would be my three favorites uh, as far as a personal choice that that need to at least be in the final 25.
1: Yeah, I would think at least two of them, maybe all three would make it. B. Wires a, a semifinalist last year, but he was the only finalist from the previous year who did make the cut from 25 to 15 in 2021. I didn't get that, but I, I would think he'd be in there. And I think Willis, actually, I think Willis might be in the final 15. There's a guy I do want to ask you about too, and, and that's Heinz Ward. Now, he's been a five-time semifinalist, but why can't he break through? I mean, we're talking about Tori Holt, and we're talking about Reggie Wayne. And Hines Ward, to me, is right there with them if he's not ahead of them because he was a complete player, basically, block, catch, do it, run, he did everything with the Steelers, just didn't put up those numbers, those gargantuan numbers, and he can't break through to the final 15. Do you foresee a day and maybe soon that he does that, and would you be a supporter?
3: Well, yeah, I think, you know, again, I, would, I wouldn't I would want any of the wide receivers to get be one of the top five this year. But I think, right. uh, I think several of them should be – I think Heinz Ward should be in the top 25, and I think they should eventually creep into the top 10. I think a lot of the, the voters ought to get behind the scenes and have phone conversations or email conversations and say, what are we looking for in the next set of wide receivers? Do you remember there had been that log jam? And there's going to be a new log jam, but you guys need to decide, is it about the numbers? Is it about the complete players? Are you going to look at yards per catch? Are you going to look at Super Bowl wins? Uh, I think this is one of those things where it's going to take some discussion. And, and where are you going to put the inflated 2000, 2010 numbers in the box, in, in, in the discussion? And that's, again, you're the jury. That's what a lot of you guys need to decide what you're going to do with these guys.
1: I, I John, think we're going to be looking at yeah. the
2: eye test for two. That's what we're going to be looking at. <laughs> John, last one for me, John, I'm going to give you four edge rushers. We like to put you on, on the spot on this show. Um, four edge rushers waiting for their day. Some of them can't even get into the uh, semifinalist group, which Clark and I are very puzzled about. Here's the four. Leslie O'Neill, John Abraham, Jared Allen, Simeon rice what do you got out of that group john
3: well the top two would be allen and leslie o'neill uh leslie o'neill a technician that did everything uh jared allen even though he didn't have long arms was extremely productive you don't get 22 sacks in a year not doing that and plus he had other really really productive years in uh, kansas city uh john abraham i just he he was a guy who was just uh, didn't stop the run all that well. So I don't see him. I just don't see him as a Hall of Famer. Simeon Rice, um, I just don't see him as a Hall of Famer either. When you look at his numbers, he had the sacks, but if I don't see a defensive end having sixty or seventy run stuff along with his sacks, I, I say he was. Probably one-dimensional, and that's the problem I see with both Abraham and Rice. They were in the 30 or 40 run stops behind the line of scrimmage. So I would say no on those two. Uh, O'Neal and and Allen were in the 60 and 70 range of they'd get in there, they'd recognize the run, and make a tackle on the back.
2: Would you clearly put uh, a Julius Peppers as a cut above uh, all four of them, John?
3: Yes. Yes, absolutely.
2: Okay. And last one for me, um, as
1: you know, Hall of Fame linebacker Sam Huff died last weekend, played for the Giants, played for the Washington, then you know, Redskins, now Washington football team. Um, what made him special? I mean, you, you, you've watched reams of film. What made him special that people today should know?
3: Well, what they should know is that he started his first game in the NFL as a right defensive tackle. Not many people know that. And when we released the sack information, it was only for the, from 60 to present, but we did have better numbers for the Giants than most teams because they had a better play by play guy. So he's Hmm. credited in on pro football reference with 29, but we're, we know that he had at least 41 if you count his 50s, if you count his 50s numbers. And he probably had a handful more. So he had 30 interceptions and at least 41 and a half sacks. That's a rare number, even for that era. The Giants were a blitzing team with Tom Landry as the um, defensive coordinator. And so you're not going to find many linebackers um, in that era with 40 sacks and 30 interceptions. You're not going to find many in this era like that. Uh, Ray Lewis is the only other one that that I can think of on the top of my head. So here's a guy playing in that era, putting up uh, Ray Lewis kind of numbers in terms of coverage, and getting
1: after the quarterback. And one other guy I should mention, and that's Curly Culp. Uh, he sadly announced this week he's suffering stage four pancreatic cancer. And um, and it, it's always heart-wrenching to hear about these guys uh, who have got terminal uh, illnesses, and, and he apparently is one of those. But it seems to me, from what I remember, he really was one of the great nose tackles. And I think what people probably don't know, a lot of people don't, but you certainly would. He was part of one of the most lopsided deals in history when he went from Kansas City to Houston, and Houston got um, not only Curly Culp, a, a Hall of Famer, a draft pick who turned out to be Robert Brazil uh, for John Mazzucca. That's right. But uh, can, can you say something about Curly Culp?
3: Yeah. Um, what people don't remember is is back in the day uh, there was there was more than just the AP Defensive Player of the Year. The NEA Defensive Player of the Year preceded it by about six years. So in 1975, Curly Culp was the, the NEA, which was voted on by the players, was the defensive player of the year. Think of that, a nose tackle winning the defensive player of the year. He had 11 and a half sacks, uh, forced six fumbles that year, recovered three, and uh, scored a touchdown on one of them. He also had 74 tackles, which is a, a very high number for a nose tackle. And eight of those were behind the line of scrimmage. It was just a, a monster year you you could argue that it was the best year ever for a nose tackle even to this day. And in addition to that, he went of course to six six pro bowls and was either you know first or second team all conference seven out of his many years. So he was a complete player. Uh as you mentioned, he was the first full-time nose tackle um in a 3-4 defense in a league that uh migrated. He was from one or two teams to 25 out of the 28 teams by the mid-80s. So he was a pioneer as well.
1: John Turney, as always, thanks so much for the insight, and we'll talk to you again soon.
3: Anytime. Thanks.
1: Thanks, John. That was NFL historian John Turney of Pro Football Journal. And Ira, I'm really glad, not surprised, but glad to hear him mention, and you mention as well, the name of Leslie O'Neill. Seems to be forgotten. I mean, he's been a one-time semifinalist. Seems to just be forgotten. And he had him second on that list of four.
2: You know, you're right, Clark. And every time Buck fans, and I don't blame them. They're Buck fans. And, you know, they're talking about Rondé Barber. But they also follow up with Simeon Rice. And Clark, if they both get in, you know, which is improbable, that would be five guys off the Buck defense. Um, And I always say, what what about Leslie O'Neill? And and they never heard of him, Clark. They've never even heard of him. (laughs) Um, so they're so wrapped up with Simeon Rice uh, because he was a very good player, but Leslie O'Neal the perfect guy in terms of slipping through the cracks.
1: Absolutely. Um,
2: Ira, got final thoughts for this week. Yeah. You know, Clark, this, this, this crazy season, I, I know they talk about parody, but boy, it seems like this year more than most Buffalo loses to Jacksonville a couple of weeks ago, Clark, the Bucks lose to Washington. Uh, The Rams lay an egg. Uh, You know, the Niners might be a little better than we thought, uh, but the Rams were terrible. Um, So you you never know what's going on in this league. And and that's why we're all into the national football.
1: I have a quick question for you. Um, Did
2: you get those dogs back to one buck place before you got back on? (laughs) <laughs> I put little Cosmo in his cage. He's, his name is Cosmo after Cosmo Kramer. Cosmo. And uh, if you know his personality, he, he is a Cosmo. He, he barges in without knocking, just like Cosmo Kramer.
1: He never loaves, so he's not going back to one buck place. Hey, um, Ian, I know one thing I'll, I'll mention before we close here, um, and I know you know about this, but, yeah, the bus is six and three. Your New England Patriots are six and four. Now, I live up here in New England, and people are going crazy, and they're already saying, you know what? We might have the next Tom Brady and Max Jones, to which I say, whoa, wait a minute. He He's good. He's really good, but let's just slow down a little bit.
0: Yeah, I, <clears throat> I, I tell people to pump the brakes on that, but – Every week, it's getting harder and harder not to believe in this kid and, and what his potential right. uh, is. Because I mean, I you know it, by every account, you know he's he you know he's checking all the boxes. I know that was a the theme earlier in this podcast, and so far so good for him.
1: Yeah, well, we checked all the boxes today, so that's going to do it. As we said, uh, we'll dissect the halls twenty five semifinalists. That'll be next week, next Wednesday. Uh, Ira and I are not going to be on that list. Uh, we're seniors, but Ian, Ian might. He might, and he should be. Anyway, uh, look for us, Ned. Look for us next week right here at, uh, where's that, Ira? The eye test for two, baby. You got it. The
3: eye test for two. Thanks so much for listening.